This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome Pierce Young, private lands biologist for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. The white-tailed deer is the official land mammal of Mississippi and one of our top game animals as well. Today on the show, we'll talk about this mighty creature and its impact on our state, We'll talk about the white-tailed deer management efforts and how to avoid them on the roads. Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear your encounters with nature. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. A reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So, good morning, Libby. We're going to start off with, we were chatting before we came on the air, and last week we had a caller asking about uh, why there were not as many birds at her bird feeders, and we kind of zeroed in on the uh, concept of keeping the area underneath the bird feeder clean, but you said you had gone back and listened to the podcast and and had an aha moment and wanted to add to that conversation. Yeah, I realized that um, we... We did address cleanliness things that the caller had mentioned, but we didn't talk about why there were fewer birds at the bird feeder. And I have that my own questions about that this year, and I think a lot of people do. But um, there's it's, there's not an easy answer to that question. And um, but one of the things that I think we all have to be mindful of is this: these birds are looking for habitat, whether it's a, a year-round resident or a, a migrator, migrating bird. They're they need certain things to live in their habitat, and so I think one of the first things we should do is if we see a decrease in the number of birders, I mean, in the number of birds that are in our yard or at our feeder. And because certainly not all birds will come to a feeder or need to come to a feeder because they they don't eat seed, and that's primarily what feeders are all about. So think about the habitat, any changes that you may have made or a neighbor has made, something that's happened in in you know the immediate vicinity that could have made a big difference to birds. And sometimes there's nothing we can do about that. You know, a, a lot's been... Uh, developed next to your property, there's a good chance you're going to have fewer birds or you're going to have different species because we know that um, some species of birds tolerate living with humans and even thrive living with people and some things just don't. And a lot of times those rarer birds that we want to see are birds that don't like to be around people. So you've got to think about your habitat, what's going on there, and then you also have to, the cleanliness thing does work in because if there's disease, once you get disease started, there's there's going to be all kinds of problems. You may see sick birds and you'll certainly could see fewer birds. But that habitat um, thing is always worth addressing. Now, there are also larger things going on that are beyond our control, like a really cold winter, which happened last winter, or winter mm-hmm. before last, I guess it was, when we had the snow and had the really cold. And birds 
you know, it's we don't like to talk about it, but birds die of all kinds of reasons. If you have a concentration of outdoor cats, you're going to have fewer birds because of the eggs and the babies are predated on by cats and by raccoons. If you have a lot of raccoons, you're probably going to have less birds. So, and squirrels eat bird eggs, actually, too. So all those things have to come into play. What other animals are in your habitat now and what plants? One of the things that we all know that we can do to help protect birds from predators because it'll give them hiding places and it'll give them more food is planting native plants. Plants that animals can benefit from eating helps. So anyway, that's kind of the long answer to um, last week's caller. And if I'm not mistaken, our host of our Friday show, the Gestalt Gardener Felder Rushing, did a book about native plants. So if uh, you wanted to try to uh, make your backyard more habitat friendly, you might check into to one of Felder's publications. Definitely. He's got a lot of good things out there. And um, oh, I guess I could seg into this. Christmas bird counts are mm-hmm. coming up all the month of December, and there I've seen several notices online about counts. If you would like to be involved in a Christmas bird count, if you're learning your birds and you want to uh, get to know some really good birders and you're part of the state, um, helping with Christmas bird counts or going along with them is a good way to meet people and to learn about more about birds. So it's a hard day, though. It's usually... Um, uh, dawn to dusk although i imagine birders that um that run the um a a lot of the bird counts would be fine if you say i can only come for a few hours but anyway think about that and you can look those up online pretty easy and the nasa exhibit is about to um I think it's maybe the next month. It ends in December, I think, towards the end of December. So if you've not seen that exhibit, it's definitely worth seeing. And if you've gone, you might want to take one more trip before it leaves. And then from last week, a reminder that tomorrow, I guess, at the museum, Friday, uh, would be November... 18th is the Owl Prowl, if I'm, I think if they, I remember correctly. They already had, oh, oh, that's right. Yes, it is this week, but... Um, I guess good news and bad news, after our show last Thursday, um, all the slots filled up. Oh, goodness, okay. they said they had to (laughs) cut off selling tickets because they wanted to make it a quality event, and you just can't have too many people. I don't know what that number was, but you could go online and check if anybody has canceled out because it is, I guess, is it going to be cold tomorrow night? I don't even know. I think probably, yes. Probably, yeah. So. Check on that, and if not, they're talking about doing another OWL event, so stay in touch with them about it. All right, very good. Uh, As always, Dr. Major is joining us from his clinic in Jackson. So good morning, Dr. Major. Got a couple of emails here for you. Uh, This first one says, I've always wondered why my dog kicks up dirt after she goes to the bathroom outside. She doesn't do it every time, but does it quite frequently. Is there any reason for this type of behavior in dogs? Yes, it's almost like a happy dog type thing, but uh, it makes you wonder if they're trying to cover up it, uh, therefore they've gone to the bathroom, but I think it has more to do with a a natural feeling of, hey, it's done, and uh, I'm going to mark my area by scratching up the dirt, and, you know, that's my thinking on it. Somebody may have a better, more educated thought about that, but it is uh, interesting to watch the dogs do that. Some of them do it. 
and others never do it. So that's interesting. And then related to the cat, my cat does uh, in his litter box a lot. It's funny, in the morning I can hear because it's a plastic and I can hear his claws against the thing. So I think in that case, it's almost like they're trying to keep it neat and clean when they can use it in the future, that, you know, they, the spot is there when, when they need it, I guess. Well, cats, cats by nature, uh, like to cover up their uh, stool or urine, and uh, they, they do that. Now, usually the cats will use their front paws to, to cover mm-hmm. things up. So, uh, and you'll see cats out in the yard that will do the same thing. They'll kind of dig a little hole and, uh, and then cover it up. So that's what, what they do. Yeah, I might have mentioned this on the air before, but the other thing that my cat does is, you know, you're right, he uses his front paws to clean up the litter box. But occasionally, if I'm sitting at my desk eating something, (laughs) he'll start doing that same motion towards my food. And it's like, what, is this your opinion of of my cooking here? You think think it needs to be covered up or something? But uh, anyway. Uh, Maybe maybe not. Maybe he does want a treat. Yeah. Uh, A couple of cat emails here. This one says, recently rescued a beautiful female kitten about one week old. My concern is to know how to deter the cat from destroying the furniture fabric. Okay, and this kitten is that old right now, mm-hmm. a little over. Okay, obviously it's got to go away before it start doing that. You can certainly uh, offer things for a cat to scratch on, such as a scratching post. Uh, quite often there's the uh, uh, sample like a burlap uh bottom of a rug mm-hmm. sample. Uh, they like that in a lot of cases. Uh, it's difficult to truly train a cat not to scratch on your best leather. So uh, keep the claws trimmed. Uh, you can do that. And that's one of the things that a cat does when they're scratching. They actually pull the old husk, if you will, off of the nail and a new sharper nail that's there. So that's I think the main reason behind the cats doing the scratching. It is difficult. I would, as, as I said, you could take a carpet, lay it over the edge. If the cat is scratching the sofa, for example, uh, lay it over the edge of that and secure it where they could scratch on that and with the burlap side up. I would also say that because the cat's only a week old, if this owner were to start trying to do some things, uh, offer it, you know, alternate sources of scratching and things, that that would be the time to do it. But if if your cat gets any older and gets kind of used to it, it's almost, you know, it's a it's a you can't get it to work. So you need to start it start at an early age, obviously, and that that will help. All right, this is Creature Comforts. If you want to day, join today's show, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is Pierce Young from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So, Pierce, thanks for joining us this morning. When we have a guest on, we always like to talk about your background and, and how you became interested in wildlife biology. Absolutely. So, um, like a lot of our other wildlife biologists, uh, I started... At a young age, you know, my parents and grandparents getting me out in, into the wild and uh, hunting and fishing. Um, grew up in Lowndes County, Mississippi, and, and my grandparent and uh, my dad were part of a hunting club and started there and, and really got into an interest, especially with uh, deer and learning all about it. And went, uh, went to school at Mississippi State, uh, did some deer research there, and then uh, went to South Texas, did some deer research. and with Texas A&M University before 
coming back and uh, getting hired on in our private lands program here at at the agency. Yeah, yes, you, as you mentioned, your 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 story is is pretty familiar to us. A lot of uh, folks share that same background, and so I would encourage parents. You know, Mississippi has such great natural resources. You know, encourage your kids to get out and explore. They might end up being a wildlife biologist. They might not. But hey, uh, it's it's great to interact with nature. I think, and and again, we've got a, a great state to take advantage of that. So, so when I talk about white-tailed deer, how prevalent are they in Mississippi? So at our last estimate, we had 1.4 million um, deer in the state. That's a 2018 estimate. Uh, I won't get into the details, but we, we have to backdate uh, using the technique. So that's the earliest we have. Um, and really that estimate is we suspect is a lot higher than 1.4 million because we had a, a low harvest for a couple of years since then and, and very uh, high fawn recruitment, uh, very good fawning conditions um, since then. So that Espen is uh, most likely higher than that by now. And, you know, uh, when you travel around Mississippi, there's the clever person at the highway department that puts those little slogans on on those signs that they have up the highways. And I noticed this one is saying that this is the time of year, I think, where deer are active in, at dawn and dusk. Is that correct? Yeah, they're, they're most active during dawn and dusk. They mostly sleep during the day and, and start uh, to go out and feed more at night. Um, and as the winter goes on and resources become more limited, they're going to move more then. But uh, the peak times that we see a lot of deer movement, especially across roads and where vehicle collisions get the highest is, is during the breeding season or the rut. Um, and so um, the bucks will be chasing the does, and, and they really only have one thing on their mind, and, and it's not a car. So uh, that, that's when that happens. So this uh, this time of year, just be a little more aware of that. I mean, you know, you know that sort of where you are and where the deer population might be. Although I guess too, uh, there might be deer in, in some places where we aren't necessarily expecting them. Absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, deer hunting season. When does that? What does the range on on deer hunting season? Yes. So Mississippi has one of the the longer uh, deer hunting seasons in the nation. Um, archery season started October 1st. We actually had our first uh, buck-only velvet season, which was actually in September for the first time this year, so it started a little bit earlier uh, for some people that wanted to do that. Um, the big kickoff, though, um, is this upcoming weekend with gun season starting. Um, that's when most people start uh, getting out, um, especially with the cooler weather, more comfortable. And going into Thanksgiving week, you know, kids are out and, and taking uh, friends and family, you know, hunting. So, um, so it's been going on, but really starting to get kicked off now, especially this weekend. Well, why do we have uh, deer hunting season in the fall? So there's there's a couple reasons. Um, so the first is a, a doe in late winter through midsummer is she's pregnant, and then in midsummer she has her fawns and is nursing, and they those don't get weaned off until they're about three months old, which typically um is going to be at uh, the beginning of the fall around october for most of the state and a lot of agencies uh, try to get start their um, buck and doe especially doe season started um, after those fawns are weaned off from their mother um, and then secondly uh, a buck loses his antlers uh, late winter and is growing them through the summer and they're going to start um, shedding that velvet having, having fully hardened antlers by the start of October, which is when we start our archery season as well. 
Um, so what's a good source of information for deer hunters about uh, dates and regulations? Yeah, so there's a few different ones. Uh, probably easiest is just to go to our website at mdwfp.com. Um, all the information's on there. Uh, we also have a app, MDWFP app, um, that has all the regulations and everything. Um, but then also anywhere you buy your license, any store you buy it, we have our outdoor digest and, and little pamphlets and things that have all the regulations, season dates, and all that on them as well. This is Creature Comforts. Today we're visiting with uh, Pierce Young uh, from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks talking about a deer. If you have a question or a comment for us, you can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So um, what uh, would someone do? Where would you report activity if you're out and about and you think that you see some illegal hunting of deer? What uh, would you recommend someone to do? Yes, yeah, so they can call uh, the it's a 1-800-BE-SMART, that's B-E-SMART, or 1-800-237-6278. That's, that goes to the switchboard, um, and you tell them the problem, where you're at, what county you're in, and, and they get you in contact with one of our conservation officers, you know, game wardens, and uh, try to get them out there. So what does illegal hunting look like in Mississippi? Um, it, very wide-ranging um, from illegal feeding, uh, taking too many deer, uh, uh, hunting at night. Probably the, the, the biggest uh, ticket our officers ride is just not having a hunting license, you know, coming up on someone and, and it's either expired or, or they never bought one. That's probably most common, I think. You know, I think what um, bothers landowners the most is when people are on their land. Yeah. So it's that trespass added to hunting when somebody don't ever hunt on somebody else's land and even if you've got permission it's a good idea to always let them know you're going to be out there absolutely so um i always like to bring out uh, hunting licenses because i think the the money goes for a good cause so first of all uh, tell us about how to get hunting license and why people why would you encourage people to do it because where the money goes, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can call you can call our office and talk to our licensing department. Um, it's it's very easy to go online now, or you, even through our new app uh, to get a license. Um, but our our uh, wildlife agency, you know, we've we've been tasked with um, with conservation of wildlife in the state, and and we do not get any tax dollars. A lot of people confuse that. Um, think we uh, get tax dollars to fund our agency, and it's it's that's not the case. We get it through license sales, and um, an act called the Pittman Robertson Act, where without getting too technical, we we basically get money from uh, hunting equipment sales, gun sales, things like that. A portion you know goes to fund our agency. So right, so for all the hunters out there, if it's something that you enjoy doing, the money that you pay f- for your hunting license goes back into the activity that you enjoy doing. Absolutely. We, we even have, uh, you know, seniors that are exempt from it or uh, other people that are exempt that, that tell us all the time they buy a license just, just to support the agency. So why is the deer the number one game animal in Mississippi? Uh, that's a good question. It's, um, you know, it's a bigger animal. You know, it's our, our biggest mammal we can hunt in the state. Um, and, you know, despite all it's also the most researched, and even though it's been the most researched wildlife animal, um, there's still a lot we don't know about it. Um, and so uh, it offers a challenge, and then, you know, uh, a lot of meat, you know, a lot of people, you know, feed their families, especially with beef prices, you know, the last couple of years. 
Um, venison, you know, it's a it's a lean meat. It's very good for you, um, and it goes a long way. Uh, but you know, I mean, this this is an animal that's uh, it's the white-tailed deer, which is the deer we have in Mississippi, is the oldest species of deer left uh, on Earth. Uh, that they've they kind of evolved around uh, two to three million years ago, and and the next closest deer species is only in like the ten thousand a year. So mm-hmm. it's it's and then they range from Alaska to north uh, part of South America. Um, wide-ranging, you know, animals. So it's 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 very adaptive animal and and, and fun to hunt for many, many people. And hunting is a great uh, activity for a lot of folks, great recreation. But also, am I correct in saying that hunting helps with the the deer population? Absolutely. Um, you know, we we have pockets of the state that are very overpopulated, um, and we've seen that especially in Central Mississippi, where where I mainly work, where. Um, there are parts of the state where the deer are eating plants that they don't like to eat because that's that's what they have available. Um, and so keeping the population down, uh, especially since we don't have the predators, you know, um, his, going back thousands of years, you know, their main predators were wolves and bears and cougars and things like that, things we don't have anymore. So now the main predator is humans and hunters. Um, and so... Uh, keeping that population uh, lower uh, makes the deer more healthy, um, and and uh, we get more fawns and, and better antlers for those who care about that as well. So, you know, I, I, a lot of times when you're driving around, you'll see, you know, maybe a family of deer in, in someone's front yard or whatever, and, and I think uh, human and deer interactions are certainly not uncommon. Do you have any advice for someone if, if they're deer in your yard? What I mean, what should you do? I, obviously, I guess you wouldn't want to feed them and encourage them, but what's the best course of action for someone if they have deer in their area? Yeah, you know, um, that's becoming more and more of a problem, especially around bigger cities because we, we are moving into their habitat, you know, um, and, and many, you know, a big part of their diet is uh, weeds or flowers, and so a lot of people plant flowers and they're attracted to that, or shrubs. I mean, that's another, that's half of their diet is 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 shrubs, so um, you know, if, if you don't want deer in your yard, uh, you know, don't encourage them, you know, through, through any type of feeding. We can maybe get into that in more detail later, but, uh, there, there are deer resistant plants or, you know, they can jump very high fences, but even they don't like to jump fences. So even having a, a, a short regular, uh, fence around your yard, your yard could deter them to some degree. Kevin Farrell here on MPB Think Radio with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. It's Creature Comforts. Our guest for the hour is biologist Pierce Young from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. If you want to join the conversation, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. We wanted to talk about chronic wasting disease, and our friend Sue in Beaumont is on the line and I think wants to talk about that. So we say, good morning, Sue. What do you have for us today? Good morning. I, I haven't uh, heard anything about chronic wasting disease in several years. It was very prevalent, you know, in the news for a while. Uh, how, how, how prevalent is it now, and is there anything you can do about it? Yes, yeah, so chronic wasting disease is, is definitely still around. Um, it's it's not as big in the news. News outlets don't carry it as much as, as when we first found it, but 
uh, our numbers have been increasing every year as as we expected and, and it always will it's not like a, uh, a virus or a bacteria that can uh, they get immunity to or it goes away it it's uh, it's a different type of disease a prion disease that just accumulates in populations slowly over time so it's always going to get worse it's always going to spread um, you know as far as managing it you know the best thing uh, we're trying to do is is promote things like uh, not supplementally feeding in those areas uh, in our chronic wasting disease zones supplemental feeding is is banned um, and um, you know some other things we've we've working very close with a lot of properties that that have the disease on their property um, giving them more tags more leeway to do as as much good deer management as possible um, and trying to limit the spread of that you know keeping the population uh, more more under control uh, so it can spread at a slower rate and it's one one of those diseases that also not a lot of uh, research has been done more so a lot of that research has just been done in recent years, <clears throat> and so hopefully, um, in the future, we'll have uh, more tools to combat this disease. But until then, we've we've got to try to keep it from spreading as much as possible un- until that day comes. And I didn't realize it was a prion disease. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right, Tosu. Thanks for calling in this morning. Always good to hear from you on creature comforts. Uh, so, Pierce, follow up: supplemental feeding. What does that mean exactly? Yes. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, so supplemental feeding um, is most most people when they think supplemental feeding is a, a feeder either using uh, protein for nutrition or um, corn for attraction for for deer and and turkeys. Uh, the regulations on that is uh, in Mississippi you have to use an above ground covered feeder or a spin cast feeder has to be a hundred yards away from the property line. Um, backyard bird and squirrel feeders are exempt from that. Um, but there's been a lot of new research out uh, in regards to deer and turkeys on, on this, uh, especially with deer movement. So um, when Mississippi State uh, did a research study, they put GPS, collared, GPS collars on a bunch of bucks in Mississippi, and we're looking at their uh, movement patterns, and they actually had some bucks that only had access to food plots and they had some bucks that had also had access to corn feeders and what they saw was that uh, the bucks that had access to corn moved less often shorter distances bedded down more and moved more at night now for a hunter um, you can see how much of a disadvantage that is um, to have a, a high energy food source that they can easily get and they're getting it at night and not moving around a lot since we have fairly mild winters here in Mississippi um, to the extent that they showed that a hunter if they only had a food plot available with no corn feeder they were four times more likely to see a buck during daylight hours um, and that's significant and then um, there was also an aflatoxin study they did which aflatoxin is a toxin created by a fungus so if corn gets on the ground under most uh, normal environmental conditions it grows this fungus produces this toxin and they showed that after three days uh, on the ground that this aflatoxin was available by day five. It could as- affect small birds, um, and by day seven it can even affect fawns. So turkey poults, it could affect them. By day seven it could affect adult turkeys. And then I know we're talking about deer, but uh, also attached to that study they were looking at parasites 
there's this uh, gut parasite called coccidia that they showed was five times higher at feed sites than at non-feed sites. And for anyone in the uh, poultry, commercial poultry industry, they know about this this parasite. It can cause die-offs, especially in small birds and stuff like that. So always better to uh, plant, uh, kind of like what we were talking at, about at the beginning of the show, food plots, year-round food plots, spreading them out more. Um, and, and even from a nutritional standpoint, you're going to get 10 to 40 times more protein per dollar. So, uh, you know, just looking at cost-benefit, you're going to get a lot more out of a food plot than you will a feeder, um, even with protein feed. And then you can be more successful as a hunter uh, with it as well. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm hearing what I'm hearing you saying is with the with the feeders, you're going to lessen the chance of of hunting. But also, as you said, it's it's it, it, it begins to have some negative environmental impact as well. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about parasites and aflatoxins and then any other disease. I mean, not even just CWD, like we mentioned, but any disease, if you concentrate them uh, down to one spot, uh, any disease can pass uh, a lot quicker. So um, if you take a deer and you go to a commercial processor, what, uh, what do you need to be aware of in terms of uh, CWD? So uh, the first thing you'll probably want to do before taking it to the processor is, is we have these drop-off freezers, which you can go to mdwfp.com slash CWD. Um, it has a map and a list and addresses of all these drop-off freezers. And, and so you can submit the head of the deer um, in a bag, and uh, we have the cards available at these drop-off freezers. Put it in there. Within a week, we typically get back the results, um, and you can look those up online. If it's positive, we'll call you even before it's online. And then you can you can either freeze that meat or uh, take it to a processor if they hold deer. You know, it, every processor is different. Um, so a lot of people, they're, they're holding their deer, you know, quartering it up and freezing it and then taking it to a processor after they get their results back, you know, just to be sure. So obviously CWD is some could affect, I mean, if you eat meat of a diseased animal, that's not good for humans either, I'm guessing. So research is still kind of out on that, um, and it, there's no definitive answer. So there, uh, but, I mean, any disease, I mean, I, it, it's always better to not eat a, a deer that's been diseased or, or risk, risk of a disease. Um, it's one of those things where you, you want to know about it, uh, and especially with CWD, there's a lot of unknowns, especially uh, between uh, the deer having CWD and, and humans potentially getting it as well. So um, it, it's definitely a concern, but unfortunately that answer still has not been uh, given yet. But that's one of those better safe than sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. This is that the, there's a lot of deer moving around this time of year, uh, and a lot of them along the road. So, any tips on avoiding car deer collisions? Yeah. So, uh, a few different tips. You know, number one is uh, if there's one deer, there's typically more. So, be aware of that. If you see, you know, the reflective eyes of of one deer, um, just be very aware. Slow down um, when you do see deer. Um, again, we mentioned that they're most active at dawn and dusk, which is also the hardest time for humans to see as well. So just be aware of that, or uh, especially in, in December and January um, for most of the state um, when the rut activity is happening. Um, maybe try not, if you don't have to, try not to drive at those times. Um, on a multi-lane highway, like a four-lane highway, um, driving on the inside lane instead of the outside lane 
where a lot of the deer will be on that outside shoulder. Um, it's always better to stay more towards the center. Um, and if a deer is directly in front of you, brake, don't swerve. Accidents are always worse if you swerve. Um, oftentimes it's, it's better to brake and hit the deer than it is swerving off and, and going into the woods or a fence or a ditch or something like that. And then the last thing would be, you know, honk your horn, you know, um, one big long honk, um, with that deer in front of you. Um, because when, when the light is, um, you know, shining in their eyes, they kind of get in a trance like state. So if they hear something like a horn, it could, it could snap them out of them and make them, make them run. And as far as we know, the little high sonic thing that you put on your car that supposedly has some sort of sound that deters the deers, any of those, those types of things work? Yeah, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I have read, uh, some recommendations through, uh, maybe it was MDOT or somebody, um, that, that recommended not relying on, on any of those gadgets. So, but again, I think as you mentioned, the you know we know that it's the time of year, and you know if you've seen one, and that's the thing. If you've seen one, maybe on your commute, you can probably much guess that the, the, there are deer in that area. So in that time, you need to be careful. If you spot one, there's more around. I guess is what you were saying. Absolutely. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks is Pierce Young. If you miss any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. That way you get to listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Uh, so, uh, Pierce, you mentioned or we mentioned earlier that you're with the private lands or a private lands biologist, and you wanted to tell us a little bit about uh, that department. Yeah, so our private lands program was created because, I mean, as a wildlife agency, you know, we're te- tasked with managing uh, the public's resource and 80 percent of lands um, where wildlife are in Mississippi are privately owned. So um, what we do as a program is try to uh, get the information that we've learned as biologists and and get it to the people out there that are actually directly managing these properties. And so um, the easiest way uh, for people to get in contact is with us is you can go to our website at mdwfp.com slash private lands and there's a uh, site visit request button there where you can fill out an application and submit it um, if you have property you want uh, us to come look at and, and discuss with you um, about this um, and it's a, it's a free service that we offer uh, so um, trying to get out there um, and manage these these properties via uh, landowners and leaseholders too not just you don't have to own land even if you lease it. Um, we offer a lot of technical advice, uh, you know, and also on our uh, YouTube and Facebook page, we we try to put out videos and articles and uh, things like that. So check those out as well. Again, uh, a free service. So if you're a landowner, that sounds like something that you might want to check into. And again, it would be mdwfp.com slash private lands. All right. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so we say good morning to Margo, who's called in from Wayne County. Margo, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Um, love all the programs y'all have for us. Um, this spring, this fall, early fall, we had a, like a cloud of these little white flies that came through, and they mostly got on what we call them the ironwood trees and killed all the leaves, like ate them or something. And then we had a snap or a wind, and it kind of blew them away, and then the leaves all <laughs> started to come back. They, trees are still looking better with the leaves but i'm just wondering what the little white things were I haven't seen them before i've been here over 10 years now back at my father's hometown and 
just hadn't seen them before. And they were only on your ironwood? Mostly, Marga? I've seen my head. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, mostly just saw them on the ironwood trees. I, I don't Didn't know. But, yeah, I will ask some questions. and um, First time I've seen just clouds of them. Yeah. Hmm. And but you, I mean, how small? When you say small, are they like like a gnat size? Okay, but quite, real like, small. Yeah, some fuzzy, kind of fuzzy a, looking. Yeah. Kind of fuzzy looking, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar. I've, I've seen them before. I'm not sure what they are or the impacts of them. Um, that's not my forte, but uh, yeah, I just hadn't seen them before. I've been, like I said, been back here about ten years. Retired here and just had these clouds of them all over the trees. Not the pecans and not so much the oaks, but the, um, these ironwood trees just ate up all the leaves and they just fell off. All the leaves fell off. Yeah, we'll but look so- it up for the future and try to address that, Marga. All right, yeah. all right. Yeah, I was hoping Thanks. somebody had seen them. All right, thank you all. Thanks, uh, Margo, for your call. Like I said, we'll, uh, Libby's good at doing some research. So, Margo, st- uh, stay tuned. In the next week or so, maybe we'll get some more information on that for you. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got another caller on the line, and it is our friend William in Starkville. William, good to hear from you. What do you have for us today? Good morning. Uh, I, I was going to comment since you were talking about uh, chronic wasting disease, which uh, uh, I think had uh, uh, was somehow resembled or related to mad cow disease, uh, that... I discovered a book on my bookshelf that that I have no idea where I got. I'd never read. It was a little old paperback, and I'm sure it was 50, if not 50 or 75 years old. And it described a remarkable situation in Papua New Guinea that I, I had never never even heard of before, of a very similar disease that pervaded uh, uh, among humans there that were still practicing, for the most unusual reason, still practicing cannibalism in uh, in some of the remote areas of uh, some remote area of Papua New Guinea. I tried to find the book in a hurry, and I had to call you before we ran out of time. But uh, what had happened down there that that, that these people were uh, this tribe of people were in such primitive conditions and such uh, dire food conditions that they ate their, their, their dead relatives uh, because they were so short of protein. And, and so they, they thought that they were <laughs> making good use of, uh, of, uh, of good tissue uh, and, and uh, reverently uh, devoured their... Their, their dead relatives as they passed on, and of course, this disease somewhere they this disease was picked up, and they knew more or less where when it had started, and of course it uh, then because they were eating the uh, the diseased tissue, it uh, uh, pervaded, and it was for all the world. Uh, I'd forgotten whether the book related it to mad cow disease. But it certainly had all the similar symptoms. What is it, a prion or something yeah, like prion that? Prion disease, and and it that was a uh, that was definitely a prion disease. I, I remember I remember reading about that as well. All right, William. Thanks for the story. Good to hear from you this morning. 
Uh, Dr. Major, got another pet question, another cat question for you. This one is, how can I discourage a nine-week-old kitten from biting? He was taken from his mother at three to four weeks. Well, that's a great question, and it happens quite often, especially if it's a solo uh, kitten that they've raised. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about before is if a kitten is bottle-raised or raised uh, by itself, it never learns that give and take of, you see kittens tussling, biting, fighting each other. And uh, there's a situation, I think, where psychologically they learn that if you get bitten, if you bite, you're going to get bitten back. <laughs> well, this is one of the real problems with a solo cat, and it seems to be uh, fairly prominent where people have raised a kitten. Uh, by itself. Now, this may not be the case, but uh, it's difficult to discourage this habit. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you might try, such as uh, some people put a can of rocks where they can rattle it if the cat starts doing that, or uh, a squirt bottle of water. But it is difficult to break. If they don't have another cat right now, it'd be wise to get another cat just to see if that would help. Is it something, though, they eventually grow out of? I know my cat was quite a biter, and, you know, we still play, and he, it's funny, it can tell when we're playing and when he gets a little bit upset and it's time to stop based on right. the severity and of the bite, but is this something they eventually grow out of? Uh, in some cases, however, I know some cat, cats that literally will hide and then stalk a visitor, in other words, and run out and bite it and then run away again, so... <laughs> This can be a, a, an issue, uh, and it's very difficult to break that habit. We are visiting today on Creature Comforts with our guest, Pierce Young, from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We've been talking about deer, so wrapping up in the next five minutes or so for the show. Um, so, Pierce, I guess deer are seen all over the miss state of Mississippi. Are there parts of the state that have greater deer populations than others? Yeah, there are, especially around... Uh Central Mississippi, you know, Madison, Yazoo County has has very high deer densities. Um, some urban areas like uh, Madison um, uh, City and you know Oxford and and Tupelo have have always had uh, a lot of urban uh, issues with with deer populations. Um, the South Delta um, has always been a place of uh, very high deer densities. Um, they got knocked back pretty good with the 2019 and 2020 floods um but they're they're jumping right back up uh pretty quick um so typically where you have uh, more fertile soils better soils agriculture things like that you're always going to have uh, higher deer densities i've got a question um i started to talk about it when we were, i had my lead in about what's going on in our house when we take our daily walks we notice deer scrapes Mm -hmm. And I mentioned a little bit to you before we came on the air. Um, I was doing some reading about it, but you had some more information about why deer scrape. And I had thought of it as territorial, which opened up a whole great conversation about how. So if you'll just explain a little bit of what we were talking about with scrapes. Sure. So with scrapes, you know, we're talking about, you know, the deer pawing the leaves away um, from the ground. Um, and urinating in that as well. They'll kind of uh, rub their back legs together and, and pee on the glands, uh, which they call the hocks or the tarsal glands. Um, and then they'll also uh, bite and lick a, uh, and rub their eyes and, and forehead on a, a, the licking branch above that as, as well. And so that, that's, uh, so there's multiple types of, 
uh, scrapes, but you can pretty much break it up into like a random scrape and a community scrape. A community scrape is typically going to be bigger. It's going to be in the same spot every year. A lot more deer are going to use it. It's kind of like social media for deer. It's a place for, or, or, or you know, like a local bar, bar or something. You know, everyone's um, coming there, you know, seeing what everyone's doing. You know, um, uh, the bucks may be checking on, you know, if any does are, are starting to come into estrus, you know, during the breeding season and stuff like that and, and see which, which bucks are, um, you know, trying to assert their dominance and stuff like that. And, and then you have other scrapes where uh, a deer – may just be walking along and just paw area and and no deer other deer ever comes back to it or that same deer will will never revisit it again interesting so that's that's where the deer like to hang out a deer bar that's a that's a fun (laughs) concept so a combination of a visual cue with the pawing but then a lot of scent absolutely uh, the glands on the forehead and and upper part of the mouth and the nose and the, uh, the eyes they have a lot of glands on their bodies and and so that's all telling uh, kind of a different different story to them. So these guys can walk through the woods and tell who's been there. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. Our call screener today was Charles Arnold. And podcasts are produced by Jermaine Flood. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Pierce Young, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.